Thank you so much, Dave. Uh, good morning. I'd like you to come with me, please, back to the world in which the gospel spread, particularly to the Greek and Roman cities and towns. And we're thinking about the workplace. And let me just tell you a few things about the communities in which the church first found itself. According to our best understanding, in almost any Greek or Roman town or city, uh, there was 50% of people on the margin of economic viability or in real destitution. Very small percentage of people had regular jobs with salaries. Most people worked in the informal economy. They were market traders, farmers, smallholders. Many were actual slaves, by which we mean bonded laborers who worked because mostly they'd got in debt. They had to go and give their labor permanently to a family. So they worked for that family for the rest of their lives. There was no welfare state, almost no charity, because the Greeks and the Romans had no culture of charity like we do in our society. And the elderly had, and disabled had no one to help them apart from their families. And then Paul turned up and shook the tree, preached the gospel. People believed, churches were formed. And we read the top line story in the book of Acts. Church planting, mission, healings, evangelism, a bit of imprisonment here, miracles left, right and center. But today, I want to read the second line. The hidden narrative of the New Testament. Because... From reading the book of Acts just superficially, you might think, well, it was just a roller coaster of miracles going on all the time. But in fact, most people lived very ordinary lives. And what were they doing in their ordinary lives? They were looking after their families and they were working. And guess what? They were working very hard. Life wasn't easy. There were small elite groups of very rich people, but you really had to be in the inner circle with the Roman authorities, or you had to have lots of land or a very powerful business or a senior role in the army in order to be rich. Most believers worked with their hands. Some were professionals. And what I want to do this morning is just to talk about four examples. People you may not have thought much about. It's the second line of the narrative. The first line is all these headlines of excitement, but underneath it, there are lots and lots and lots and lots of people just like you. They're in the story. So I'm just going to show you, we've got a slide here, just one or two examples. On the left... A man called Erastus, he's mentioned by Paul in Romans 16, where it says approximately this, Erastus, 
the chief of public, the director of public works, that's in the city of Corinth where he was, the director of public works sends you greetings. Okay, Erastus, the director of public works, sends you greetings. Now, in other words, this man, Erastus, was either the city treasurer or the senior engineer, not quite sure exactly what the role meant, who looked after all the public buildings and all the streets and all the latrines, all the garbage heaps in Corinth. And he was in the Corinthian church. Ninety years ago, while the archaeologists were digging around in Corinth, they discovered a slab on a street. It had an inscription on it. Erastus, in return for his public office, laid this pavement at his own expense. And they dated it to the middle of the first century. It's probably this man. He was a disciple of Jesus 25 years after the resurrection, running the buildings and public works in Corinth and part of that crazy Corinthian church where everything went wrong. And in his job... He would be lobbied by rich people day after day. Will you do this, Erastus? Will you do that? Can you just move that signpost there? How about putting a building up here? This latrine really stinks. And the rich people would be coming to him day by day. Erastus, can you sort this out? Number two, Lydia. Paul went to a place called Philippi. He went to a place of prayer where women tended to gather, preach the gospel, and a woman there called Lydia believed. And it says of Lydia, we don't know very much about her, but she was from another town in Asia Minor in Turkey, and she was a dealer in purple cloth. So this was the first convert in Philippi, a founder of that church, probably a very rich woman, who was a dealer in high-quality fabrics. And because of where she was located, she was probably moving high-quality fabrics from modern-day Turkey through modern-day Greece and probably through to Rome. And the significance of purple is that it was the imperial color, the most favored color in their culture. This is the workplace. Number two. Number three. A couple who always mentioned together, Priscilla and Aquila, they appear in a number of references. I've just put them up on the screen. We're not going to go through them. They had a business of what the Bible describes, the New Testament describes as tent making. But the Greek word actually means, um, if you expand its meaning, not just tents, but leather workers. They worked with leather. They made belts. They made clothing. They probably made shoes. They probably made saddles. And they made tents. And they had a business. And when we first meet them, they're in Rome, running their business. They probably had a market stall in the center of Rome. 
Then there was a bit of persecution and they were forced to leave. And then they moved to Corinth in Greece where Paul met them. And he started a joint business with them in Corinth. Because he was a tent maker. So he said, hey, can I stay with you? Can we just work together for a bit so we get enough money together so I can spend more time preaching? So the three of them, there's three of them in that picture if you can look closely, Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila, they, they, they worked really, really hard on their leather business, took their products down to the market, made enough money so they could rent their property, quite a large property, probably, so they could host the church community. Then Paul said to them, I want to move from Corinth. I want to go over to Ephesus. Will you come with me? So they said, okay. They left Corinth. Remember, they started in Rome, in Italy. Then they got to Greece, in Corinth, and he said, hey, can you come over to what we would call Turkey, Ephesus? And they started the same business all over there. We think a lot about Paul, but we don't often think about Priscilla and Aquila working in their business, thinking of how their business interfaced with the kingdom of God. The fourth one coming up on the next slide. Here's an interesting one. If you read the book of Philemon, I wonder if you've ever read closely the book of Philemon, you'll see three characters in the book. There's Paul, the writer. He's writing to a man called Philemon who lived in a city called Colossae. And Philemon was a rich man, probably one of the church leaders, and he owned a slave by the name of Onesimus. But the problem is, Onesimus had met Paul when he was in Colossae, then Paul went off to Rome and other places, and and he ended up in prison in Rome, and one day the prison officer said to him, Paul, you never guess, you got a visitor from Colossae. His name is Onesimus. And Paul thinks, hang on a minute, that guy's a slave. They talked together, and Paul said, what are you doing here? He said, I've escaped. I stole some money off Philemon. I really got fed up with the working conditions and I wanted to find somewhere safe to go. So I've come to see you, Paul. How would you fancy that? Paul then preached the gospel to him. He believed the gospel and he said, Onesimus, you've done something wrong. You need to go back to your master. He writes a letter to the master. He says, look, I'm sending Onesimus back. He's been a really bad boy. But he's met Christ, he's become my son in the faith, and if he owes you any money, don't charge him, charge me. I'll pay it next time I come. The workplace was the home. And there was a real tension in that home that Paul had to resolve because the servant had stolen from the master and run away but encountered the grace of God. So by the way, do you have some problems in the workplace? They had a few back then. Underneath the top line of the narrative, there are loads and loads of stories of people in working environments that make us realize that the front line of discipleship for most people in the New Testament was the workplace and the home, of course, And sometimes the workplace and the home weren't that far separated because so many trades operated from the home. If you're a market trader, and many, many people were market traders, you go to any developing nation, you know what it's like. Most people are in the markets, aren't they? And they're not just talking. They're trying to find a market for their products. 
And where do they keep their products? They keep their products at home in the backyard. It's the storage for the business. So the home and the business, they just weren't so separate as they are very much for our lives today. So are you with me? There were a few problems for them in those days. And Paul had to answer some really tricky questions about the workplace. Would you like to find, would you like an interesting example? Would that interest you? Here's a tricky one. I wonder what you would say to this. Let's put up the next slide. All over the Greek and uh, Roman world, there were temples. Here's one in Athens that's very well preserved. And the temples were the places where the Greek and Roman citizens went to worship their idols. And when they worshipped their idols, almost all of their gods demanded an animal sacrifice. So huge amounts of meat were sacrificed in the temple for the sacrificial uh, services. But what that meant was that a vast amount of meat entered into the food cycle from the temple. So if I want to go to a temple and I want to worship, I have to kill a cow. But how much of the cow is actually used in the sacrificial uh, uh, event? Hardly anything. 95% of it enters the food cycle. Are you with me? No, the Christians didn't go up to worship in the idols, of course. Paul had told them that. They're worshiping Christ, but here's a challenge. What happened next to the food? Well, the priests and the other operatives in the temple had a little business they ran. Okay? Clever guys. They set up a restaurant in the temple. With the meat sacrifice to the idols, which they'd done all the sacrifice, 95% of the, the carcass is here. So they opened not just Starbucks, but they opened like a full Greek restaurant. Okay, or the equivalent. Are you with me? And then... Groups of workers from different businesses will come in and book a table and have a social meal with meat sacrificed to idols on the table. What should the Christians do? The marketeers, the tent makers, the leather workers, the people bringing their farming stuff in from the countryside the home tutors, the domestic workers, the guilds, the people who came and booked a table. And Paul said, don't go to those meals, not because you're afraid of the meat, but because people will think you're worshipping those idols. Now, we had a lot of other things to say about this, which I'm not going to go into now. All I'm doing is illustrating. In every culture, the workplace and the kingdom have a very, very complex interrelationship. And every Christian in the workplace, at some point or another, has to make judgments about complicated, relational, social, ethical, financial issues. Almost every Christian. Would you agree with that? That we hardly ever talk about And the phone lines are open for tonight. But what we face, they faced. It started right at the beginning. How was Erastus going to deal with the pressure groups uh, in the civil 
in, in, in a civic society in Corinth. How were, what were people going to do when they were de- going up to these temple idol feasts? What were they going to do with the meat that was coming into the food cycle? It was a challenging time for them. I'm going to draw a little bit on the material of previous speakers. I want briefly to suggest to you four keys to help us, and then I'm going to end with two stories to make us think. Here comes the first one. This is a fairly obvious one, but it is very important to say. Working with integrity, there's nothing you can possibly do to replace your personal integrity in the workplace with money, with what you say, with how you conduct yourself, with your attitudes. And so Peter said, live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. How will people see your good works? Mostly in the workplace. Would you agree with that? Most of what people see about you, if you're in the workplace, I know some of us are not, we can apply this more generally to other areas in social life, community life, family life, voluntary work. But if you're in the workplace, this is where most non-Christians see you most specifically and evaluate you most uh, accurately. There is no shortcut for that integrity. I was very moved about 10 years, 10 years ago. My elder brother... Uh, died of cancer prematurely, sadly. His last working life for about 10 years had been in the building trade, and he worked in a Christian-led private building company in the West Country that won national awards. He was, a, he was working in procurement of land and negotiating with authorities and working with builders. It was a new trade he developed in his 50s. He'd been a helicopter pilot. He was a Christian, very committed Christian, When he died, I went to his funeral. I've told this story once before. Forgive me for those who've heard it before. Down there in Cornwall uh, with the family. And what I noticed in the funeral was that most of the people there were from the workplace. The building trade was overwhelmingly represented in that funeral. And the things that were said about his work were said from people in the building trade because the company had such a reputation for integrity in the whole area. That's our first priority, working with integrity. The second priority, this is a, one that's been alluded to in our series, but I think it deserves a little bit more expansion. This is something which I consider to be, if I'm honest, the absolute key that some Christians never, ever unlock fully. Paul, speaking to slaves and masters in Ephesians 6, not that he approved of slavery, but he regulated how Christians should respond to it. He wanted it overturned, but they couldn't achieve that in those days. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ 
doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of us for whatever good they do, whether they're slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, um, and uh, he is both that, and there is no favoritism with him. I think the key to the workplace for Christians more than anything else that we often don't realize is that the Christians can very easily adopt the attitude of unbelievers, that the workplace is something where I take what I want, but I don't invest in the institution or the business. That's what a lot of people do in secular people, don't they? In certain types of jobs, they're in it to get what they want and then to move on. And Paul really brings out an interesting key here. He said, if you're serving Christ and Christ has put you in an institution where there's somebody over you, then your responsibility is serving them even in their deficiencies and their failures and their sins. And that's where it gets really, really hard. And I'll give you some examples in a moment. We're serving them because we're serving a master. And if we're in a position of power in the workplace, we don't lord it over people We have a master too, even if we're in the position of authority and we rule over people, we do it with grace and justice and care for their well-being and don't adopt a domineering attitude. That's really what Paul is saying here. There's hardly anything more testing for a Christian than to work for somebody who you think isn't really worth working for or is deficient or is devious or is exploitative or is unjust? Anyone ever had that feeling? What do we do then? My first two jobs before I moved into church work, one was in teaching and I worked for a headmaster who everyone considered to be ineffective. Gossip in the staff room, divisions, factions, it was a terrible situation. I had to ask myself, what attitude am I going to take? I shared some of their concerns, but I was ultimately serving that teacher. It challenged me. Then I went into a business job and I found in the retail trade and I found that the guy who owned the business wasn't straight with finances. As I was building his business up, he was taking money out the other end. What did he do then? I found out from the accountant, by the way, The internal accountant told me what he was doing with the money and he did it when I was on holiday. But he ended up in prison, by the way, this guy. You're still serving. You need to challenge, but you're still serving. While you're there, you're serving. It's very easy to change the attitude because you can see things aren't right. And that happened all the time in the New Testament. So the discipleship of believers is enhanced by a servant attitude in the workplace even when things aren't right. And sometimes that serving is humbly challenging. But it's not rebelling. It's not gossiping. It's not undermining. It's not destroying the employment. It's a spirit of servanthood. And the third one, 
All the way through the New Testament, a fairly obvious point is made in a number of different ways. That we work to support ourselves, our families, and those in need. That's an interesting thing. There's three different dimensions here. Paul said on a number of occasions that he worked to support himself. He tried to make himself self-supporting. And he encouraged people to look after their families with the finance they had and to put a priority on the families. But he also said another interesting, challenging thing, which is very countercultural these days. He said to someone, a notional person in Ephesians 4, verse about 28, he said that if there's a thief, who's someone who's been a thief, do something useful with your hands so that you can have enough to provide for those in need. So you're going from criminal activity to working activity, not just for yourself, but for other people. So you provide for yourself, you provide for your family, and whatever you can spare goes to those who need help. There are many texts that suggest this priority, and some of them I put up on the screen for you to see. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 to 10, 1 Timothy 5, 8, Ephesians 4, and 28. And the final point here. Here's another key. Some people never find this, but I believe it's a key. Finding contentment in our work. 1 Thessalonians 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. That goes completely against the culture of our day, doesn't it? It's discontent, discontent, discontent everywhere. The countercultural Christian message is to find contentment through our work and our life in places where other people say that is ridiculous. God can give us a remarkable contentment. Let me give you an example. As I travel around the country, as I do a lot these days, one type of place I go to very often are Christian conference centers. And there's one I visit quite regularly, and I've visited it for over 20 years, on and off. And when I first went there, I noticed the chef, because he smiled a lot. And his team seemed to be very happy. And every time I go back, he's still there. He's just a little bit grayer. Still got the same smile. And every time I go there, the food is high quality. The team seem content. The volunteers, which come from different countries, are always very affable and friendly. And I try and make a point of thanking him for what he does. My estimation is he's been in the same job for 25 to 30 years, doing exactly the same thing. His skills are such that he could easily double his wages, in my estimation, by going into the private sector. But when I I spoke to him not so long ago, I talked to him, and what I see in him is contentment. He's doing what he feels he ought to do, and he does it with a wonderful attitude, and he's been doing it for years and years and years and years. I'm not saying we should all do that. 
The other thing I noticed about the place is the atmosphere in the dining hall is always very affable and companionable amongst the different groups that I've noticed there. It almost feels like contentment from the staff just ripples out to the hundreds and hundreds, thousands of guests they have from all over the world. Finding contentment can be very, very hard when the workplace is difficult. But we should seek it. And in that peace comes an opportunity to serve God because we're not trying to go up the tree necessarily. We're content because we have what we need. I want to finish this talk with a story. And this story is about something even more foundational than what I've mentioned so far. I believe one of the great keys to finding uh, contentment in our work is to see the prophetic significance of what we do in this life. To see a wider significance than the task itself. And here's a story about this. There was a man in his 50s. His name was Mr. Niggle. He was an eccentric artist. No disrespect for the artists here, but some of them are a bit eccentric. He lived in a country cottage on his own. He wasn't married. He didn't have a family. He had one neighbor, Mr. Parrish, who had a wife, Mrs. Parrish, another older couple. They lived outside of town, and Mr. Niggle used to, he had a bicycle. He used to go into town regularly to the market, to the shops. He was reasonably well-known. Everybody knew he was eccentric, and he dressed a bit oddly, and they knew that he painted. And very occasionally, his paintings would appear and be sold. Not that many, but just occasionally. And he had a kind of artist studio in his shed at the back of his garden. And one or two friends were occasionally allowed into this studio. And it was filled with unfinished this, unfinished that, an idea here, some canvas there. And what his friends began to realize about Mr. Niggle was he was a perfectionist. Now, if you're an artist and a perfectionist, it's a painful life. Because it's hard to finish anything. And he always was very loath to say that he'd actually finished anything. So there were unfinished products here and unfinished paintings there all over his studio. But one day a friend walked in and they found that he had a huge, gigantic canvas that filled the whole wall. And they said, Mr. Niggle, what's, what's this canvas for? And he said, I've seen a great tree. Where have you seen it? In my mind. And I'm going to paint this great tree. Well, when they looked on the canvas, all they could see was some pencil marks and some outlines and a few brush strokes here and there. And he was working very, very hard on one leaf. And as they looked at this leaf, it was incredibly beautiful. It was like a leaf you've never seen before. And so his friend said, well, we need more than one leaf, Mr. Niggle. Yeah, give me time. Give me time. So his friend would pop in from time to time. And progress was very slow. There was only one completed leaf. 
And then one day he died, quite suddenly, of a heart attack. And when his house was cleared, cleared by the community, his friend rescued this one leaf. And he framed it, and he put it in the museum in the town hall, and he gave it the title, Leaf by Niggle. And anyone who saw it was immediately captivated by that leaf. They thought it was the most brilliant artistic production relating to a tree they'd ever seen. And they said, who is this guy? Can we meet this guy? Oh, some guy who lived, he's died. It's a bit of junk in his yard and we threw it all away. We just rescued this one leaf. Well, when Mr. Niggle died, he went towards the Eternal City. And as he was approaching the eternal city, just as he was getting close to it, he saw the tree. The whole beautiful, wonderful tree, even more glorious than he'd envisaged it all his life. He could even see his leaf. But there were hundreds of leaves. And as he looked, he could see other trees round. And he said to people nearby, this is the great tree I've seen. And behind was mountainous countryside. And he was given permission in the eternal world to explore all the countryside. And he built a house near the tree for other passers-by to receive hospitality. But as time went on, back in this world, there was a fire in the town hall. And the museum was burnt down. And leaf by niggle disappeared from human memory. But he'd seen something. He'd seen that his work was part of something eternal. He only had the time and the capacity and being the perfectionist, it made it particularly difficult to achieve a tiny, tiny fraction. Anyone who saw that tiny fraction was greatly animated by it, wanted to know about the picture, but he never finished it. And I believe the Holy Spirit can enable us to see significance in human work far beyond its economic value now. In caring for the poor, raising families, administering medical care, looking after nature, building community, cleaning our streets. If we can catch a glimpse of the significance of what we do, we have the key. And if you can't see that in your workplace, come this evening and we'll talk about it. Mr. Niggle saw it. And that story, which I've summarized slightly inaccurately, was written by Tolkien to describe his journey writing The Lord of the Rings in case he never finished it. But he did. Many of us don't finish it. We're like Mr. Niggle, but that leaf is very precious. God sees it, 
and we'll see it connected in eternity. Let's stand together. Just pray for a moment and then I'll hand back to Dave and Terry.